Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. We're traveling to the crown jewel of Louisiana's River Road, stepping back in time to revisit a dark chapter in American history and uncovering the best that New Orleans has to offer. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick, and along with my husband, Ian, we're exploring Louisiana from its history to one of its great homes and to its greatest city, New Orleans. Thanks, dear. On today's World Footprints, we're drilling down into Louisiana's culture and history. First, it's off to Homa's house in Darrow, Louisiana, an antebellum plantation that's the crown jewel of Louisiana's River Road. Homa's house is a short trip from New Orleans or Baton Rouge, and we'll learn what inspired its colorful owner, entrepreneur Kevin Kelly, to preserve Homa's house as a living history and decorative arts showcase. So as I would visit every house, I'd, I'd critique it, what was good and what was bad. And every single house I have ever toured was that way, and, and I hate it. And I always dreamed about what it would be like to be in one of these houses and not have any of this. So when I had the opportunity to do this, I wanted to do it the way I think these houses should be shown. Then the greatest act of slave resistance in American history took place in 1811, just outside of New Orleans, and has remained largely untold. But thanks to author Daniel Rasmussen and his book American Uprising, the untold story of America's largest slave revolt, new light is being shed on that event and the great American paradox, slavery. Because Louisiana is sort of on the periphery of uh, America at this point, it's not even a state. Uh, and it's surrounded by Spanish territory, uh, there's sort of less attention paid. Uh, so it's really a combination of the conscious efforts to cover it up by the planters and the American government. Finally, native New Orleanian and travel writer Laura Martone is the author of the Moon Travel Guide to New Orleans, and she stops by to give her take on what makes her hometown such an interesting and captivating place for her and for visitors alike. Oh, well, there's just no place like it. I mean, it's definitely my favorite city in America. And, I mean, yes, I guess I'm biased because I was born and raised here, but, you know, I mean, I just, I just think, like I said, there's no place like it. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. My name is Judy Whitney Davis. I work as a tour guide and historical interpreter here at Holmes. And I have been here nine years, but I've been a tour guide for 15. Our first start is actually ringing the bell. That's our official start. Now that we've all been suitably deafened. Is that the dinner bell? I wish it were. <laughs> and actually, that's not the loud one. The one back that way, which is an actual plantation bell, that's the loud one. We have, actually have to use hearing protection for that one. Really? Oh, yeah, it can be heard up to a half mile away. Homa's house in Darrow, Louisiana, is an antebellum plantation that's the crown jewel of Louisiana's River Road. Homa's house is a short trip from New Orleans or Baton Rouge, and we'll learn what inspired its colorful owner, entrepreneur Kevin Kelly, to preserve Homa's house as a living history showcase. Well, Ian and I are here with Kevin Michael Sean Kelly, <laughs> good Irish name, um, owner of the uh, Homus House. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. So tell us a, a little bit about the history of Homus House. How old are the grounds here? How old is the house itself? 
Well, there are two parts of the house. The rear part of the house, which is our Latiel's Landing restaurant, is 1770. And the front house was basically built in about 1813. Mm -hmm. But the looks of the house today happened in 1828. They kept adding on to it from 1813 until 1828. And why the name Homa's House? Where did the house get its name from? The Indians who originally inhabited here from about the 1500s on were named the Homa's Indians. And it's really pronounced Umas, H-O-U-M-A-S or O-U-M-A-S, depending on which dialect. But they're a, an Indian tribe that's not recognized by the federal government, uh, primarily because they, uh, they married with the Europeans. And uh, there were, there's no remaining just homeless Indians. So uh, they've just lost their recognition or never gained their recognition because they were always intermarried into the other populations. So they're not recognized as Native Americans now under federal protection or a sovereign unity today? Correct. Uh, they're not recognized at all, even though it was the homeless nation. Uh, their tribe that meets and does things um, have been trying to get recognized, um, but they haven't been able to. And now it's very difficult because if you get recognized, then you get the rights to gambling and casinos and things like that. So the government tries not to give that to any additional groups. So it's doubtful they'll ever get it now. Mm-hmm. now this, the history of this house is very interesting. I know the first two owners, one was um, French and the other, was it Irish? Well, actually, all the owners were Irish except while it was a sugar plantation where it was physically growing sugarcane, it was always Irish owners until, uh, well, excuse me, Alexander Latiel was French. And Alexander Latiel um, built this back house in 1770, but he was only here for a couple of years. All other owners of the house, except the owner who bought it in 1940, but all the owners who grew sugarcane were all Irish. And the house sits on, uh, what, about 30 acres or so, but it, back when it was built, originally built, there were uh, you know thousands of acres, I understand. Is that correct? When Wade Hampton bought the property in 1813, the property was 68,000 acres. And then during the Burnside ownership, he just kept buying and buying. And it ended up being somewhere between 365,000 and 400,000 acres um, at the time of his death in 1881 because he never, ever sold anything. Now, I understand, you know, with all of the the artifacts here, the, um, the history, the... Uh, the artwork. Uh, you actually live on site here, and and you use this house. You allow this house to be used for public events. You entertain here. How do you preserve the integrity of the you know the hundred year old um, works of art when you have people coming in and out of the the house? Um, it's easy. There's no problem. I guess when people come to a place like this, they understand the significance. They understand they need to honor and cherish the house, and they just don't disturb it. Um, anyone who comes to see historic houses, I think, they're, they're fans, and they want to see them protected. We have parties here. We have weddings here. But usually the parties and weddings begin in the house when the drinking hasn't really started very much. There may be 20 to 30 minutes of drinking, so we don't have to worry about the drunks right. breaking things. Nothing has ever been stolen. Nothing has ever been broken. Nothing has been damaged. So and we're operating here now for 10 years this way. I mean, I, I do live here. Um, 
I'm single. I've never had kids. So it's, I enjoy meeting the people and having the people here. I, I tease, but it's absolutely true. We're only closed two days a year, Christmas Day and New Year's Day. And those are my two worst days of the year. Christmas isn't so horrible because my brother and his family and my mom, they come and visit. And so there's people here on Christmas Day. But on New Year's Day, I'm here by myself. And it feels like you're in a funeral parlor. It's just dead when there are no other people around. And I don't know how to express it, but I had someone stay here on New Year's Day. And they understood it. If, when you're in a place where, you know, just the, the noise of the fountains and things like that when no one's here it's all turned off and it's just not the same kevin you are a self-described entrepreneurial preservationist what attracted you to take on the challenge of bringing homeless house back and opening it up the way that you have that's real easy my whole life i've enjoyed visiting the great estates or homes historic homes around the country and all around the world actually and as i've done that i kind of critique each one when i went and my biggest problem with most places is when you go in, there are ropes across the door. Or there's these little lucite boxes that you have to walk into to see the room, like most museums are. And you can't appreciate the houses for what they are when you're looking through a little bird hole. And to just to totally be able to experience these rooms, you need to walk in the rooms and be able to be a part of the rooms. you got to feel the scale of them and things like that. And so as I would visit every house I'd, I'd critique it what was good and what was bad and every single house I have ever toured was that way and and I hate it and I always dreamed about what it would be like to be in one of these houses and not have any of this so when I had the opportunity to do this I wanted to do it the way I think these houses should be shown and um, I have friends who have these historic houses in the area and the, the other plantations and they don't do it the way I do and they're fearful that things are going to be damaged and broken but they're not so I, I think there's a false belief that um, you can have these places open, that you can't have them open. I, I, I think it's obvious you can. When I first bought Homeless House, I, I won't name the museum I went to, but it's a museum in New Orleans. It's a historic house. And I gave a business card, and on the back of my business card, it offered a free tour for two to come visit Homeless House. And I gave it to the director of one of the museums. I said, please come see Homeless House and see what I've, I've done here. And she said, oh, you're with that house. And I said, ooh, what do you mean by that? And she said, you're the one that lets people come in and sit on the furniture and touch the furniture and and see the items. I said, yeah. She says, we wouldn't allow you to join our association because you make us look bad. Because everybody can go in your place and touch and feel and sit. They think they can do that in ours, and it makes us look bad. But, you know, I think that that's one of the, the attractive things that I found today going through this tour. And, I, I you know, I, I don't know if I can talk for you, too, honey, but the comments that I heard from the people going through the tour with us was, you know, they appreciated that experiential opportunity, those authentic opportunities to really... You know, feel immersed in in the history, and your tour guide Judy was fantastic. You know, in bringing the story to life, and uh, and so personally, I, I applaud you. I was surprised that you even opened up your bedroom <laughs> for for the tour, um, but uh, truly appreciated. You know that opportunity. One nice thing about living in a house like this, since everything has to be immaculate all the time, is you have a housekeeper. <laughs> so it's not so bad when you get up in the morning. The housekeeper makes your bed just like at a hotel, and 
turns it down at night, and so you know there are advantages, and there I guess there's some disadvantages, but there aren't many disadvantages to this. But I really think it's important that people be able to go in and see and feel. Um, my favorite house to visit is uh, Biltmore House in Asheville, North Carolina, and some of its rooms are totally open that you can walk through the rooms and see them, but not all of the rooms. And um, I think that's the reason I like it so much is because you can feel a part of the house. Talk a little bit about the eclectic uh, artwork that you have in the house. From what I understand, you have about $8.2 million worth of antiques, art, etc. that you also leave open to the public to to view. Where did... where did all of those pieces come from? Uh, were they original to the house or imported throughout the various ownerships or, or what? Some of the paintings have been in Homa's house since the 1870s. Most of them are, are paintings that are older, um, but they were not original to the house. The, um, the collection that's here is primarily Louisiana art. Most, I would say a majority is New Orleans art. The architecturals are, are typically New Orleans. Your landscapes are general Louisiana landscapes. Uh, the steamboat paintings are all Mississippi River steamboat paintings. Um, the portraiture are all New Orleans, with the exception of the two Carolina pieces, which are Carolyn Hampton Preston, the daughter of the builder of the house, and her husband, John Smith Preston. Um you know, you, you, though it's not the original furniture or the original artwork, it's not available today. If I could bring back the originals, I would. But the original furniture for Homeless House is in the White House today. The Duncan Fife made the original first floor furniture, which was the living room, dining room, men's parlor, and billiard room. He didn't make the billiard table, but he made the rest of the furniture. And when the house was sold in 1940, it moved to a plantation in West Virginia called Walnut Grove, where the family lived. And it stayed there until 1962 when Jackie Kennedy was redoing the White House. She wanted to find the finest collection of American furniture. And Duncan Fife has always been known as the best American furniture maker. She bought the collection and she moved it to the White House. So I'll never get it back. Do you know what room it's in? Because we've, we've been there a few times. When you see, I think on the tour, at least when I went on the tour, they talk about the... Um, the Duncan Fife collection. Duncan Fife was a furniture maker in New York. Very high-end, high-style. Um, it's very much the style. We, I have five Duncan Fife pe- pieces in the house today. And two of the pieces are original to Homer's house. It, it's interesting. When Jackie was buying, I say Jackie like she was my friend, but everybody knows who Jackie is. When she bought the collection, she refused to buy the mixing table that was made by Duncan Fife that was in the family because she thought it was inappropriate to have a mixing table in the White House. Now, we have to remember, she was married to the Kennedys who made their money smuggling liquor in the country, and she didn't think it was appropriate to have a bar in a White House. A bar is a mixing table, and it it was very important for me to get the mixing table here. First of all, because it was Duncan Fife. Second of all, because John Burnside invented the mint julep at Homer's house, which was once a rum drink at the time. It became a bourbon drink when he would go to his other estate, the Greenbrier, which is now the Greenbrier Resort, when he would go there, he would uh, pass through Kentucky, and he introduced the, the rum mint julep to them, and they converted to, to bourbon. Now, I can't say he actually invented the julep, because the julep is actually 
uh, claimed to be either an English or a Scotch drink that was made with either Scotch or a sherry. I forget what type of sherry it was. But he made the mint julep with the rum at first here on that table. So it's nice to have. <laughs> now, Kevin, you've really made a commitment to making Homer's House a, a, a center for decorative arts, perhaps uh, indirectly through uh, just the efforts to preserve this place. But that's really all part of this vision of opening this place up to the public and allowing people to come in and touch and see and feel the uh, great works that you have here, the furniture to really connect so that this place is not a museum piece, but it reminds people of how people used to live um, in the past. Part of that, too, is uh, expanding your, your, your reach with uh, the restaurant and uh, uh, the uh, accommodations that will be on site soon. Talk to us about that larger vision to get people to stay here for several days going forward. Well, when you visit many of, this, many of these historic houses, you feel like you're in a place that's dead. It's not living. I want this place to be a place that you feel alive in, you enjoy. The, in the gardens, we have water features all over the place. And the idea is when you walk into the property, you forget the outside world exists. So you're in this sheltered little haven. And over the next few years, as I develop it for overnight stays and that, that people will come and spend three days and just reset their lives. Uh, forget the world exists. I like to tease, live life the way the South was meant to be. And I think it's a cute comment. Some people don't like the comment, but, you know, um, I'm not sure what else I could say. It's, uh, it's uh, the climate here is Southern. I mean, it is hot as hell in July and August. And maybe people wouldn't dream of the, the South being hot as hell the way it is sometimes. And in the winter, sometimes it gets very, very cold. But in my mind, it's the way the South was meant to be. As you uncover the history and the artifacts of the plantation, you're incorporating that into the storytelling and being able to bring to life some of the people who helped to build this place, the people who were instrumental in uh, the sugarcane operations that were once here and growing that and telling the stories about the slaves as well as the people who owned the property throughout uh, the centuries here. That's part of the excitement of what you're doing to reach out to people of all stripes going forward and to tell the American story, tell the Louisiana story, to tell the story of this place. All the stories are very, very important. Um, What we do when we educate the tour guides on how to give a tour, we would like them to be somewhat theatrical. And what I mean by that is being a storyteller. We don't want our guides to have a rehearsed story. We teach the facts. We teach them about the furniture, the artwork, the stories, the families. We try to teach them about everything. And there is no specific tour. The guide, as they're walking through the house creates the story. No two tours are alike. So she's a conversationist. And if people start asking about artwork, the tour is probably going to be around artwork more so. If people are asking around the furniture, it's about the furniture. If it's a story of slavery, she'll get into that story. If it's how the sugar barons lived, it'll be that. So it all depends on what people ask about as to what the tour will be about. So on many of the tours, again, I'm, I'm trying to operate the plantation the way 
I think a historic house should be operated, and I don't want a recording. Kevin, thank you so much. The tour, we love the tour, and we look forward to visiting you again at Homeless House. It was great having you all here. Thank you for coming. As Kevin mentioned, the slave story at Homeless House is part of its history, and they don't shy away from it, as we learn from Homeless House guy Judy Whitney Davis. At its height, Homeless House came with 60,000 acres, two sugar mills, and in a time when 7% of Southern Americans owned slaves, 550 slaves in their families. And you have to realize that by 1860, the cost of a slave then started at $1,000 and went up. In today's money, accounting for inflation, that's almost $30,000. In total, there were almost uh, about 1,100 here because they had small children and older people here as well. But they would not have been counted simply because they were not productive slaves. The productive slaves, the ones who were working in the fields, the ones who were working in the house, The ones who did specialty work like bricklaying and carpentry work, those were the ones that were normally counted. Children under the age of 13 in Louisiana and slaves over the age of 55 were normally not counted in terms of sale. They were, however, counted in other states. But also, the music that they sang throughout the South, we're learning it wasn't what you think. Most people assume spirituals are religious. No, they're not. They're codes ways that slaves could secretly pass information to each other. Slaves would be working together in a field. One or two of them are not working well. It's throwing the field off. Nobody can figure out what's wrong until one slave, one of those jumpy ones, bursts into song with, Wait in the water, wait in the water, children, wait in the water. God's gonna trouble the water. And that whole field gets alert. They just figured out the problem. Wade in the water meant in code. Tonight, I'm leaving for Canada with members of the Underground Railroad. We're waiting for dark. If anyone's interested, let me know. And the whole field knew it. So they're busy working, singing, passing the information. Then the song ends. The field gets quiet. But there's another field of slaves about a mile down the road. They heard the song, and they knew exactly what it meant. So suddenly in the second field, you'd hear one or two slaves singing to the first one in the first field who started the song. See that band all dressed in red. God's gonna trouble the water. Oh, it must be the band that Moses led. God's gonna trouble the water. They were telling slave number one in the first field, when you get safely to Canada, tell the people who got you there to come back for us. We'll be ready to go. And they're singing back and forth to each other, and people going by thought, oh, the slaves are singing. You know, I think they must be happy. I'm sure they were. Some of them were going to freedom. After the break, the greatest act of slave resistance in American history took place in 1811 near New Orleans, And we'll delve into this event with Daniel Rasmussen, author of American Uprising, The Untold Story of America's Largest Slave Revolt. Because Louisiana is on the periphery of uh, America at this point, it's not even a state, uh, and it's surrounded by Spanish territory, uh, there's sort of less attention paid. Uh, So it's really a combination of the conscious efforts covered up by the planters and the American government. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, this is Johnny from New Orleans. Welcome, World Footprints, and come visit us in New Orleans sometime. We're 
Visit Seneca Falls, New York. For more information, Suffrage Wagon News Channel, suffragewagon.org. Hi, this is Keenan Jonah. Welcome to New Orleans. We're here with the World Footprint people, and they are the best people in the world. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Many Americans are familiar with the slave revolts led by John Brown and Nat Turner, but the story of the greatest act of slave resistance in American history took place in 1811 and has remained largely untold until now. Author Daniel Rasmussen has pulled back the curtain on a long-neglected period in New Orleans and his new book, American Uprising, The Untold Story of America's Largest Slave Revolt, offers new history into the rise of slavery in the South and the nation's path to civil war. Dan, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This narrative began as a research project for you when you were at Harvard University. What was it about the topic that captured your attention? You know, when I first started uh, digging in, uh, I was really amazed, first of all, by how covered up this had been. And I sort of, I, you know, started working as an investigative journalist early on, and I uh, fell in love with the sort of stories that sort of dig up things that people are trying to hide. And so my first instinct when I came upon this and seeing how little was written about it, uh, how consciously people were trying to cover it up back in the early 19th century, that got me going. Uh, but then what really hooked me was to see this as a story of men who were fighting uh, and willing to fight and die for freedom uh, and liberty and that sort of heroism you know especially you know a 24 year old guy uh, that sort of story really appealed to me you say that the 1811 slave revolt that took place in new orleans is the largest one in american history why has this story remained untold for so long you know well right after the revolt uh First of all, the planters and the federal military uh, killed a hundred slaves and put their heads on pikes. Um, and so that was the first act of suppression. But they, what followed was an act of narrative suppression. Uh, in letters and newspaper accounts, uh, they described this revolt as not as a revolt, but as a riot led by a quote unquote horde of brigands. So basically describing the slave rebels as criminals, stripping them of any political at- intent saying that the event was trivial, insignificant, and easily suppressed, uh, and, and reporting that back to Washington. And because Louisiana is sort of on the periphery of uh, America at this point, it's not even a state, uh, and it's surrounded by Spanish territory, uh, there's sort of less attention paid. Uh, so it's really a combination of the conscious efforts to cover it up by the planters and the American government, uh, as well as sort of the reality that Louisiana is just not uh, as much of a center of attention at this point. Well, let's talk a little bit about the disparity between the reality and and the myths that have been generated and and some of your research methodologies, because I can imagine uh, if this was actively uh, covered up and uh, your research would have had to been very, very challenging. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So when I first started, I read the newspaper accounts and the letters and I asked myself, did this even happen? Uh, Because they were that dismissive of this event. Uh, and so I had to dig to the next level of sources, which were uh, military correspondence, uh, diplomatic correspondence from French and Spanish emissaries 
uh, and from the American uh, Navy and federal military. Uh, and then the planters own financial records, uh, their statements of account, uh, their ledger books. And what I did was I built up databases uh, in Excel because the best uh, tools uh, to understand you know, financial data, and this was essentially financial data, is you know, Excel. Uh, and so once I had these databases, which basically had the name, uh, every piece of information I had about each individual slave, I mapped those databases onto old land maps. Uh, and then use uh, Google Maps to say, well, if I know from the military correspondence that X event happened at 9 a.m., then using Google Maps can say it would have taken three hours to get there from this other location. Uh, and so built up first, you know, a spatial understanding of where things happened by using these land map, old land maps, uh, and then a chronological understanding, uh, and then finally sort of weaving that together into a narrative. So it was really very challenging work took me months, and it, it really required, uh, you know, being innovative about the way you approach history and sort of being a detective and building this legal case uh, using uh, very fragmentary evidence. Mm-hmm. That appeals to me as, as, as an attorney, Dan, <laughs> I must say. But I, I'm just very cu- curious, why the cover-up? Why go to such lengths to cover up this event? Well, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, I think the, the first overwhelming reason uh, is simply that the idea of armed slaves uh, dressed in military uniform, flying flags, beating drums, standing up and saying we're, we're free, and not only are we free, we have a real political vision, uh, is a fundamental challenge to the ideology of plantation slavery, uh, which is that slaves are not people, uh, they're animals, uh, you know, or as close as you can get to animals, and that they are not entitled to, nor are they capable of, uh, political thinking. Uh, and thus are suited to their role as slaves. Uh, and so the first reason that this was suppressed was simply that they didn't want this story getting out to other slaves. And the planters themselves didn't want to recognize the essential truth of what they were doing, which was uh, you know, suppressing this political activity, suppressing uh, the inherent humanity of the slaves. Uh, the second reason uh, is that Louisiana is up for statehood at, at this very moment in Congress. Uh, and William Claiborne, the American governor, is very keen on preventing... Uh, the atrocities that were committed, the hundred heads on pikes, mm. uh, as well as just the reality of the instability of New Orleans from getting back and reports to Washington. So he's very careful about that. Uh, and then, you know, I think uh, finally, um, you know, you just do have the natural circumstance of Louisiana, Louisiana being on the fringe, uh, but also there's no sort of reaction. So after Nat Turner, one of the reasons we know a lot about Nat Turner or John Brown is they p- provoke serious political discussions afterwards. Whereas in Louisiana, after this revolt, the only thing that happens is that the planters call for increased American military presence. There's no reconsideration of whether slavery is right or wrong. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, sort of internal deep questioning. All they do is say, this is just another reason why we need more military support uh, to protect us, to protect the interests of slavery. Uh, and of course, that increased militarization is one of the reasons that Louisiana is so well prepared to fight the War of 1812 against the British. Mm-hmm. Dan, we have a question from a listener, Lonnie from Lansing, Michigan, says that he saw you on C-SPAN, and you talked about the African connection with the Igbo tribe. Can you elaborate more about that connection and on the, militaris- uh, the militarization of the revolt, which you started to touch on? Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Lonnie, for that question. Uh, so. I think we often think about uh, slaves as sort of homogenous, of being all, you know, all of one race, all of one ethnicity, but that's not true. 
And there's nowhere that this is less true than New Orleans, which is a totally multi-ethnic slave population. Uh, you have Congolese slaves, you have Ashanti slaves, Haitian slaves, slaves born in Louisiana, men born in Virginia, Kentucky, all coming together into this sort of melting pot, which is uh, the planta slave plantations outside of New Orleans. Uh, and so the leadership of this revolt actually crosses several ethnic lines. So there are really four most prominent leaders, one of whom born in Louisiana, one of whom is born in Virginia, and two of whom are Ashanti. Uh, the Ashanti kingdom was this warlike empire in West Africa that, you know, in the late uh, 18th century, early 19th century, was pushing towards the coast in this sort of uh, grand uh, imperial struggle. Uh, there's also, you know, uh, tactical connections to... Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're Congolese slaves. Many of these men would have been trained from birth to be warriors. Uh, so you see a level of African military tactics being employed here. Uh, you know, very familiar. It's guerrilla warfare. Um, the idea is not to face your enemy into open battle, but rather to lure them out from their centers of power, to harass them, to wear them down. Uh, and so you have this, uh, you know, multi-ethnic coalition coming together, employing African military tactics. Uh, but ultimately, I think they're also... Uh, inspired very much by uh, European military tactics and by the Haitian Revolution, right? They're putting on militia uniforms, their masters' old militia uniforms, and they're consciously evoking uh, that symbolism uh, to remind them and their other, uh, other slaves uh, about Haiti uh, and about uh, the recent revolution that's uh, taken place there. Hmm. Uh, Dan, you, um, you, you, your book also touches on the um, this revolt, the 1811 slave revolt, and its significance to the Civil War. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that correlation. Absolutely. You know, I think the Civil War, ultimately the reason the southern states secede, uh, is out of a fear uh, that the federal government uh, will no longer protect the institution of slavery. And they, they will no longer protect the institution of slavery against their own slaves, right? Who is the threat in this situation? Who do the southern states, why do the southern states need federal protection? They need federal protection to prevent slave revolts. And if you look at the ordinances of secession uh, and the various states' rationales for why they secede, they cite over and over again the idea of, quote-unquote, <coughs> quote domestic insurrection, which is the idea that their own slave populations will rise up against them and kill them. Uh, and John Brown's raid is really sort of the, 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 the big spark for that. But you have to think about the South, I think, as a, as a militarized uh, area uh, with a captive population uh, that is, uh, has as its greatest fear uh, this sort of constant paranoia about slave revolt. Uh, and Louisiana, because this is the largest uh, slave uprising, and it, it has such a significant role in sort of shaping, I think, the psyche of the city, uh, I think is an excellent example of just what they were afraid of uh, and the ways in which um, slave revolts and political activity among the slaves uh, in shapes uh, the politics of the South. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can see it here in New Orleans with uh, the way in which this revolt drives the French and Spanish planters into the arms of the American government, uh, solidifies American control, uh, and then uh, fosters the militarization uh, and arming of this area. I'm just curious. It, it, during the course of your research, I, I'm assuming you you did travel to to New Orleans um, and go through archival materials. What was your impression of the the area at the time during your during the course of your uh, your research? Did you did you sense a greater 
change. And I ask because Ian and I travel down there quite frequently. It's uh, one of our, our our favorite places. And we, we today see it as kind of a cultural gumbo. Um, I'm just curious what what your impression was and if we're kind of looking at things through rosy-colored glasses. No, I think that's very true. I think New Orleans has a lot of Caribbean influences. Uh, I think that you can still feel... Uh, that sort of multi-ethnicity, this sort of confluence of cultures. Uh, but I think to imagine it back then uh, and to read the descriptions of what the port of New Orleans was like then and to see it not as it is now, uh, you know, I think New Orleans is, you know, is sort of less the center of attention then. But New Orleans then is, you know, the richest city in the South, perhaps the richest city in America, uh, as the uh, northern edge of this Caribbean culture, uh, we are constantly having ships coming in from Haiti, from Cuba, from Brazil, from Africa, from England, uh, from Charleston, uh, you know, coming into the ports, you know, 40 different languages being spoken uh, there, uh, right, you know, in the harbor. Uh, and I think that, uh, even though that, that, I think that culture persists today, I think it was much, much stronger back then. Uh, you know, and I think you could really feel it when you read travelers' accounts uh, you know, of northerners that travel down there. They're just amazed by just how foreign, how exotic, how different uh, New Orleans feels. Mm-hmm. Dan, even though we talk about slavery, the peculiar institution in America's development, we're now uh, 150, almost 200 years since uh, uh, a large-scale slavery in the United States. And I'm curious, from your perspective as an academic, the lessons, the important lessons in uh, society building, in economics, uh, politics, that came out of this very dark period in American history, are there lessons today as uh, we look at the world and even as we look at our country that that uh, stand uh, strong in your mind as we think about who we are as people today and some of the challenges that we face in this world? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fascinating question, one I've thought a lot about. I mean, I think the, the first thing when, when I sort of think about this period is I think it's, it's, it's important to consider that slavery... Uh, is the foundation of the American economy. Uh, it really is. Cotton, for example, is the number one uh, and the majority of U.S. exports from 1800 to 1930. Uh, it, in the antebellum period, these southern cities, Charleston, New Orleans, were much wealthier uh, than northern cities. And the northern cities were in most ways dependent upon southern agriculture, whether it is uh, for you know, textile mill production that springs up uh, in New England, or whether it's the shipping and uh, merchant banking that uh, emerges in, in, in New York and Boston. Uh, and that's largely dependent on southern cotton and southern sugar. And that, in turn, is dependent upon slavery. Uh, so for me, I think it raises a lot of questions about you know, economic growth here uh, in the United States being based upon slavery. Uh, and I think a bil- man's ability to rationalize uh, and make, uh, you know, what was really a horrific and immoral institution uh, seem palatable because it had such material benefits to this country uh, in terms of our economic growth, in terms of fueling American expansion and American power. Uh, And so for me, I think it it, it sort of raises questions about, you know, how we think about our past and, 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 and I think pushing us to look at places that I think make us uncomfortable. Uh, but I think there's another lesson which I think was really important to draw uh, from this story, 
which is, I think, that, that we can see the slaves not as victims, uh, that not to see slavery as a sign that we should feel guilty, ashamed, dark about, uh, but rather uh, that we should celebrate the accomplishments of the enslaved, that these men and women, not only were they fueling American economic, uh, economic growth, uh, but they were also uh, resisting uh, and fighting for freedom and liberty uh, and dying for it. And these heroes who, who, who die in the cane fields of 1811, uh, whose actions I think stand as a testament to the best American ideals uh, of freedom, liberty, and equality, uh, and yet who are beheaded uh, because of their beliefs uh, in those actions. But I think that if we can feel proud about their accomplishments uh, and celebrate those accomplishments, I think hopefully we can uh, move towards a, a better understanding of who we are as people. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's a great uh, takeaway, Dan, um, for your book as well. What uh, is there a follow-up? Are you in the process of doing a follow-up book uh, to American Uprising? Because you, you take us into current day, but I, am, I can imagine there are a lot of stories within the story of American Uprising. You know, there are, and, 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 and what, what I'm doing now is I've been so narrowly focused on this topic for so long, uh, just trying to drill it out and figure it out and make sense of it, and now I'm sort of trying to pull back and read much more broadly uh, to sort of get a sense of where I want to go next, but I don't have a definite conclusion yet about what I want to write about next. Well, we thank you for sharing true history um, with us and and certainly for taking the time with us today on World Footprints. Uh, Daniel Rasmussen, the author of American Uprising, the untold story of America's largest slave revolt. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. When we return, native New Orleans and travel writer Laura Martone is the author of the Moon Travel Guide to New Orleans, and she stops by to give her take on what makes her hometown such an interesting and captivating place for her and visitors alike. Oh, well, there's just no place like it. I mean, it's definitely my favorite city in America. And I mean, yes, I guess I'm biased because I was born and raised here. But, you know, I mean, I just I just think, like I said, there's no place like it. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hey, this is Jay down in New Orleans, and you're listening to the good folks at World Footprints. Visit the Galapagos Islands, meet polar bears in Canada, sip wine in northern Italy, explore the Hawaiian Islands aboard a luxury yacht, and stand face-to-face with China's terracotta soldiers. Explore the world on a journey of a lifetime with World Footprints Discovery Tours. These tours give a unique view of the world in an intimate, small group setting with the freedom to immerse yourself in local culture, learn, and make new friends along the way. Book early and save. Visit worldfootprints.com and look for Discovery Tours to begin your next adventure today. Hi, I'm Callie Schultz from the great city of New Orleans, and you're listening to World Footprints Radio. We can't wait to see you in New Orleans very soon. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. There's no better way to experience a city than through the eyes of a local. That's what we're going to do today as we're back in one of our favorite cities, New Orleans. Laura Martone was born and raised in the Big Easy, and even though she's traveled all over the world and even left Louisiana to study, her heart has remained in New Orleans. Laura has authored The Moon Travel Guide to New Orleans and stops by today to give us a taste of authentic New Orleans. Laura, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. 
having me. And congratulations on the New Moon Travel Guide, the third edition. You've always returned to New Orleans after moving away for school and other things. What keeps you there today? Oh, well, there's just no place like it. I mean, it's definitely my favorite city in America. And, I mean, yes, I guess I'm biased because I was born and raised here. But, you know, I mean, I just I just think, like I said, there's no place like it. I've lived in Chicago and L.A., um, South Padre Island in Texas. I've lived all over the place. And even though I do love to travel and I love to leave to see other places and experience, you know, other people and other um, regional traditions, I still I still always come back here because it's, just, I guess the pull is that strong. And my husband and I actually live in the French Quarter, which as a child was always a dream of mine. So I'm, I'm glad to be here now. There's definitely no place like that. <laughs> now, there's a timeless quality to many parts of New Orleans, but given the perspective that you grew up there and now you're living there, how does the city look and feel to you versus what you experienced growing up in New Orleans? Well, it depends on the area. I think in many respects it, it hasn't really changed. I mean, the quarter, I would say even, you know, I'm, I'm 36 years old, so it's not like I've, I've been around that long. And even as a child, I think the quarter was a very popular place for tourists. Um, but you could easily get off the main streets, like, you know, like Bourbon Street, and still kind of feel um, the, you know, the history of it. And... Um, especially at night. My husband and I love to wander around at night, like through Jackson Square. I mean, it's a very atmospheric place, and you really do feel almost transported back in time. So in some senses, I don't think it has changed. Obviously, Katrina changed things, um, because I had lived for, during my high school years, in an area called Lakeview that was underwater mm. uh, during Katrina, so, or after Katrina. So obviously... That affected things because places had to be rebuilt, and, and so it looks different. And, like, for instance, all of my childhood homes are gone now. So there are things that are different just from a personal standpoint, but um, and certain businesses that I loved as a kid. I was even talking recently to some friends about a place called O'Flaherty's. It was an Irish pub that had, you know, great music, and it, it went away after Katrina and never came back. And so there are certain haunts of mine that are gone. But the vibe of the city, I still feel, is, is intact you know, mm-hmm. as it was when I was little. So, Laura, you know, for a listener who's never been to New Orleans, what do you think the greatest misperception is about the city? That it's just a party place. I think that that's a part that, you know, whenever I, I, I meet someone who's never been in New Orleans, their first thought is Mardi Gras. Um, and while Mardi Gras is a fun time to be in New Orleans, it's definitely, you know, there's a lot of energy, a lot of color. Um, a lot of music. I actually like, I, 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 well, I prefer, for one thing, French Quarter Fest. That's one of my favorite times to be here mm-hmm. um, in the city. And so I just feel that the, the that is an issue, you know, that, that people think that it's just a party place. But, I mean, the other things that people expect, the good food, the good music, that's definitely true. I think that the, the thing, too, there's a lot of tourists feel like they have to hit Bourbon Street. And while I think that, yes, it's great to experience that, you definitely shouldn't stay there. You know, there's better music elsewhere, better food elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so I think those are some of the, you know, the, the misperceptions of of New Orleans. And, you know, um, I think what surprises a lot of people, um, even, you know, people who come down for French Quarter uh, Festival is that there are a lot of family-friendly venues 
throughout the city. Oh, yeah. I think the city has gone out of its way to really include, you know, family activities. Um, French Quarter Festival is a great example. Mm-hmm. And, and like you, it's one of our favorites, which is why we come back every single year to broadcast. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but, but there's a lot even outside of, you know, the festivals for families to, to get involved with. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Well, even, uh, you know, different attractions. I mean, Audubon Zoo and the Audubon Aquarium, Audubon Insectarium, which is the new, you know, the newer one of, of the Audubon family. That one's great. It's obviously all about insects. Um, from butterflies to roaches, but it's a really cool, that's a cool place for families. Um, really any age, you know, person can enjoy it there. But, um, you know, there's Blaine Kern's Mardi Gras World, which is a great, you know, sort of behind-the-scenes look at, at the floats mm-hmm. and sort of the spectacle of Mardi Gras. So there's a lot of attractions for families, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then there's even, I mean, plenty of venues, just musical venues and, and food and, you know, different places. It is a very family-friendly town. There are just certain areas. My husband and I often joke when we see little kids um, on, on Bourbon Street at night. You know, I'm not I'm not sure that that's the best thing, but I guess if the parents are there and they're willing to explain what they're seeing, then, you know, that's up to them. But, I mean, there are definitely certain areas that I might not bring a small child um, but I, I think, yes, overall, it's a very family-friendly town. Well, you know, I, I have a cousin who grew up in New Orleans as well, and, and her mother, um, she spent a lot of time on Bourbon Street. New Orleans obviously has seen a lot of uh, rebuilding and reconstruction on so many levels post-Katrina. You and your husband, Daniel, uh, launched a, a film festival, and the city received mm-hmm. lots of positive press during uh, the recent Super Bowl. What have you seen in terms of... Uh, the rebuilding of the city post-Katrina that gives you hope for the future for your hometown? Well, besides the fact that things, you know, like the Mahalia Jackson Theater wasn't really, you know, a a thing before Katrina. I mean, there are, you know, big, big um, uh, establishments like that that you definitely see. But also, I think it's just the, the vibe of the city. I think right after Katrina, so many people had left, even my family. I mean, my mom used to live in New Orleans, and she moved to Baton Rouge, along with my grandma and my aunt. And so there was a, there was definitely a mass exodus. But I think there was, because of that, it kind of presented an opportunity. And so there's been an influx of really creative young people, too. So there's a lot a lot more artists and musicians and creative types, writers, here now. So I think that, in a way, it sort of became a rebirth of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and while it still is plagued by certain things, you know, crime and poor education and things like that, certainly things that we're still, the interest, you know, the, the government is still um, grappling with, um, I think that the spirit is not only intact, but in some ways it was sort of revived. Um, and so, I mean, that's what I see, I think, overall. And then a lot of places, like I said, a lot of places did come back. And thank goodness that Katrina um, didn't affect uh, the French Quarter. I mean, in some ways, the French Quarter is probably more affected by the BP oil spill simply because of the seafood and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily, Katrina itself, there was some wind damage. But, I mean, if, if the French Quarter had flooded, it would be a very different conversation, you know. Um, so I think that because the different tourist parts of the city and the heart of the city. I mean, I think a lot of people still feel like the French Quarter is at least, you know, part of the heart of the city. Um, I don't know. It just it just gave New Orleans... Katrina is a terrible thing, and I don't wish that it had happened to the city, certainly, but in the, there is sort of a silver lining in that, like I said, there's been sort of a rebirth. Um, and I definitely feel it. My husband and I feel it. We're not the only ones that came back, you know, to try and help and, and everything, so... 
Actually, I'm going to have to talk to your mayor about giving us a key to the city because I think we deserve this. <laughs> this <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we talked a little bit, you know, or, or you had mentioned earlier that there are so many other treasures outside of the French Quarter. And, of course, you know, we're here for French Quarter Festival. But we also like to showcase New Orleans as a city as a whole because it's it's so much more than the French um French Quarter, what are some of your favorite treasures outside of the quarter and, and certainly, you know, throughout the city? Where do you like to go as a local? I, I like City Park a lot, which is in um, in mid-city, and you can actually get to it easily from the quarter or the CBD, you know, the business district, um, via one of the streetcar lines, one of the newer streetcar lines. So it's really, it, that was another thing I was going to say about the city is that it's, it's a very compact big city. It's kind of a small big city. So it's really easy to get around even without a car, just by using the streetcar, um, the bus system, you know, bikes. Uh, so it's, you can pretty much stay anywhere you want. You don't have to just stay in the expensive quarter um, to get to the quarter. But anyway, I like City Park a lot, and there's... Um, Next to Noma, which is the New Orleans Museum of Art, there's a sculpture garden that's really mm-hmm. great. Um, that was named after um, the uh, the Betzoff family, who um, used to used to own a, a drugstore called K and B that obviously no longer exists. I think it was taken over by Rite Aid long ago, um, like so many other local businesses. But uh, anyway, it's a great. I think it's like five acres, and it but it's filled with like sixty plus sculptures and these little lagoons and fountains, and it's just a very peaceful little oasis, you know, in the city. Mm-hmm. And I like places like that. Um, my husband and I actually spend the summers in northern Michigan, in the middle of nowhere, you know, on a lake amid the woods. So I mean, I think I like getting that sometimes, trying to find, um, you know, those kinds of little oases in, in in an urban place like this. And Audubon Park is very nice too, uptown. Right. Um, and the streetcar. I highly recommend anyone anyone hopping on board the streetcar. It's so cheap. It's like a dollar twenty five. So it's kind of one of the best bargain attractions there is because. They are historic, you know, especially the streetcar, the uh, St. Charles streetcar line, mm-hmm. and um, it's a great way to see to see the city. Um, in fact, um, my husband and I we we actually produced an audio tour, a ghost tour of the French Quarter, and we're working on one for the streetcar line as well because it's so interesting and it's just a fun fun activity to just stay on and look out, you know, look at all the historic buildings along along the the oak shaded avenue. So. Um, so I, I like those. I like uh, music in the Faubourg Marigny, which is next to the French Quarter. So I highly recommend that if you're really looking for more authentic blues and jazz, you know, that you would head over there. That's where a lot of the locals hang out um, versus the Quarter. Mm-hmm. But there are some great venues in the Quarter, too. I mean, some of my favorite places, I love the, the Cary Irish Pub and One-Eyed Jacks. They're two great venues that have a lot of, of live acts um, that are away from Bourbon Street. Um, but uh, not that I'm, you know, <laughs> talking badly about Bourbon Street. I just don't think that's the only place people should stay. In fact, I've heard from visitors who have never been to New Orleans before say they wouldn't come back because basically they spent all their time on Bourbon and it wasn't what they were hoping. Well, you need to get off, you know, that street and explore a little bit more. And like I said, because the city's relatively small, it's not that hard to get around and see, you know, better venues. A good venue, too, is Rock and Bowl. Um, which moved um, fairly recently, um, but it's, so it's sort of on the fringes of Uptown, and that's a great place. It's a bowling alley, but they feature a lot of really great music. So you can kind of, you, in fact, if you're there playing, I think bowling, you, I think it's still like this. You don't have to pay a cover charge because you're already there, and then once the music starts, you get, you know, sort of a bonus to your bowling game. 
I, I do want to actually ask you about Northern Michigan because that's my home state. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, but but you know, I'm also Ian and I are also foodies, um, and so I mm-hmm. have to ask you, where's your favorite? place to to enjoy New Orleans cuisine. Well, here or in, or in New Orleans or yeah, in Michigan? Well, I don't know if Northern Michigan has offers <laughs> for you. Northern Michigan has attempted it. There's a place in Traverse City that I won't mention their name, but they definitely do not do it the way I anticipate New Orleans cuisine to taste it. I'm but, sure. Um, <laughs> so I've tried that, no. But oh, here, yeah, wow, that's tough. I mean, in, in New Orleans, I have a very long list. And the funny thing is, my husband is actually from Michigan. He's a, you know, he's a GM brat. His father and one of his older brothers works for GM, and so he, he grew up in the Detroit area, uh-huh. and um, so that's part of why we go up there in the summer months, and he really fell in love with New Orleans. I mean, in some respects, I'd almost say, and I, I, I shouldn't say this, but he almost loves it more than me. I mean, I love the city, for sure, <laughs> but he is definitely, I mean, just attracted to everything about it, the culture, um, the music, the food, just the sort of almost island time vibe of the city, you know, where everything's very laid back, and um, all of that he loves, and he's a really good cook, so he especially loves the food. Oh so it's my. tough for me sometimes to answer the question of where my favorite place is, because my favorite place would be like Shea Dan's, because he does such a good job with pretty much all the, you know, the big the big cuisine, all of the, the staples, jambalaya and um, gumbo and, you know, shrimp shrimp etouffee, all of that. But um, I we really like, in the quarter, we like Cafe Mispero, which is a very inexpensive place on Decatur if you want fried seafood. Um, I often joke to people that if they served gumbo and raw oysters, I probably wouldn't eat anywhere else, but unfortunately they don't. So I have to go elsewhere. Um, Oceana, also in the quarter, has really good raw oysters if you're into that. They're really mm. clean and delicious. I, I love raw oysters, but I'm not a big fan when they've got big chunks of dirt in them. Um, so they, they do a really good job there. Um, but outside of the quarter, I... My husband and I also really like Giacomo's, which is uptown. And they do New Orleans staples, but, like, with a twist. Everything is very creative. Like, they do this really awesome, um, I think it's a, it's a seafood cheesecake that's really good. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think, like, in Mid-City. Mid-City has a lot of really good restaurants, too. Um, I like uh, Katie's. Um, Mandina's, which is more traditional, although the service sometimes is a tough thing to deal with. They're kind of, um, it's, it's hit and miss there. I think it's because it's been there forever, so they kind of feel like they can get away with it. But the food is good. Mm. They have a really good oyster artichoke soup there that I like. Um, and then even the Marini have some really interesting places. There's a sushi place called Wasabi, and then there's another place called Mojitos that does a really good job and has like, a ton of mojitos. So if you're into rum drinks, that's a good place to go. Yes, please. Well, Laura, you have given us so many great ideas of uh, places that we should check out after our broadcast today. Uh, Laura Martin. I'm glad. I'm glad. The, Maybe I'll join you there. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, the, the author of Moon's Guide to New Orleans, we thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed the many layers of Louisiana history and culture presented today. If you want more of World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report, giving you the latest breaking travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. While there, explore our World Footprints Discovery Tours for a journey of a lifetime to some of the most remarkable places on the planet. 
And also make sure you subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on your favorite social network. We're Tanya and Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved.